Today we're going to be discussing uh, breaking the law. Okay, and uh, anyone here ever broken the law before? Okay. Okay. Uh, anyone here ever stolen something that that wasn't yours? Okay. Um, I, I think those Skillcraft government pens. Anybody have any of those at home? Because hey, those are property of the U.S. government, is my understanding. So it even says right on U.S. government, right on top of it. Um, you know, uh, driven over the speed limit. Okay, I, I think that's about 40 kilometers an hour on most of these roads in Iwakuni, um, which is like 25 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, when I moved to Japan and I realized how slow I, we were driving after you kind of, you're like, oh, 60 kilometers an hour. Then you realize that's only like 40 or 45, and you're like, man, we drive really slow. Go back to the States, and it's so scary driving. Um, yeah, you know, I think, I think most of us, if not all of us, we've broken the law before. And, and, and some of us have even been caught by law enforcement while breaking the law. And, and thankfully, the, uh, some broken laws, they, they can be wiped from your record, right? Uh, maybe... Some of you, like me, have had traffic violations, and through time, they, they get cleared from your record. I know not most of you have ever experienced anything like that, but I have to confess that I'm one of those people that I'm thankful for the time and the erasing of uh, accidents and uh, traffic violations. Some violations, however, uh, they remain with you. Okay? And there may even be some of you here today that, that have a permanent record to prove it. And I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but maybe you know of someone that uh, has that uh, with them, you know, has broken the law and has a record to prove it. Okay? Today in our portion of Scripture, we're going to look at the Pharisees' accusations of Jesus and his disciples as being lawbreakers. Okay? And we're going to see how Jesus is able to defend himself and his disciples against such accusations. And so today we're going to pick up where we last left off, uh, jumping into chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. Uh, and so I want to encourage you guys to uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go through this in a message that I've entitled, Lord of the Sabbath. And so will you join in rising as we read God's Word, just to honor His Word as we read Matthew chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 1 through 13 this morning. Let's read. Follow along as I read chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath... And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or 
Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning and the opportunity to gather together in fellowship. uh, Lord, to encourage one another to worship and to find ourselves in your presence. And Father, and we thank you that we get this opportunity to go through your word. Lord, I pray that you'd lead and guide us as we go through it. Father, I pray that uh, we'd be able to make application to our own lives this morning as we glean from uh, what you are doing uh, there in, in your interactions with the Pharisees in regards to the Sabbath. And I uh, just pray that uh, we would leave this place having heard from you and, and knowing uh, more and more of what you would have for us how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to honor you and uh, serve you with our lives. And so, Father, lead and guide our time. Lord, we do pray. I just want to pray for those who are combating human trafficking. I pray your blessings would be upon them. Lord, lead and guide them. Lord, we thank you that we have uh, people, that we know people who are actively involved in in fighting against uh, slavery. And, Lord, just a a great opportunity uh, doing it in your name and sharing your love. And so, Father, we pray that you'd be with them uh, as well and just remember them and uh, the ministry and the, the work you have going there. Lord, be with us this morning and lead and guide us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Here in these first two verses of the chapter, we see Jesus and his disciples, they are passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they were hungry. And so they began to pluck heads of grain to eat as they passed through the grain fields. And when the Pharisees saw it, they accused them of breaking the law. And some may think that the law that they were breaking was stealing, because they were eating from someone else's grain fields. But this was actually permitted under Mosaic law that they were allowed to do such thing. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, it says this. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. And when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Okay? And so we see here that the law allowed for someone to pass through and to partake of the fruits of a field, provided that they weren't gathering things into a container or that they weren't harvesting it with a sickle, uh, the standing grain, harvesting it and collecting it with them and, and moving on. It's kind of like those fruit picking places. I don't know if you've ever been to some of those fruit picking places before. Uh, my understanding, you go, you pay like an entrance fee, and you can go and eat whatever you want. You can just go pick and eat and eat. But if you want to take some with you, you've got to pay an additional fee. Well, this they didn't have to pay a fee, but the idea is you're allowed to go in, eat what you can as you're passing through, but you can't take a bag and fill it up. You can't uh, try to gather it to yourself and, and eat it, store it up for later. So that would not be allowed. And so as long as you weren't gathering items, storing them for later consumption, it was okay to take a little something from a field. And so what the disciples were doing was perfectly legal in that sense because they simply they plucked a few heads of grain while they're passing through and they weren't stockpiling grain for later 
on in their journey. They weren't harvesting it with a sickle. And so they weren't stealing. Okay? They weren't breaking the, any laws in that sense. Okay? So what did the disciples do to make the Pharisees accuse them of breaking the law? Okay? We see here that it wasn't so much what they did as much as it was when they did it. Okay? The Pharisees accused them of breaking the law because the disciples did what they did on the Sabbath. Okay? This is actually the first mention of the word Sabbath in Matthew's Gospel. And I know we've been going through the Gospel account of Matthew, and so I thought it would be important just to kind of inform us and to teach us, and maybe many of you already know all about the Sabbath, but to explain what the Sabbath is, because we're going to see uh, many accusations and allegations that will come based upon a knowledge of what the Sabbath was. And so I thought it'd be important to explain the Sabbath this morning. Okay? The Sabbath, that the word Sabbath means rest or in a, a cessation from labor. And it first occurs in the scriptures in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23. It says this, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. Uh, these words were spoken by Moses in connection to the uh, collection of manna. You guys may recall uh, there in Exodus by the Israelites, as the Lord would provide food for them, He rained down manna. They were supposed to go out and collect it. Okay? And they were to collect enough manna for each day for five days. They were never to take too much. If you guys remember what would happen if they took too much, it would turn into worms and then be all got gross and stuff like that. So they were just supposed to take what they needed for that day, consume it for five straight days. But on the sixth day, they were to collect a double portion. Okay? And they would collect that double portion on the sixth day because on the seventh day, the Lord wouldn't provide any manna on the seventh day. And so he said, the seventh day, it's a Sabbath. I'm not going to provide the manna. Don't go out and collect it. Okay? It's not going to be there. Store up enough for you on the sixth day. And so that is the first mention of the word Sabbath. Okay? And so although the first mention of the word Sabbath is in Exodus, I believe that the institution of the day of rest is much older, and I believe it's founded by the Lord at the completion of creation way back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, it says this, And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. And so after completing all of creation... God took a day of rest. Now remember that word rest, it indicates a stoppage of work. He stopped creating. Okay? Uh, it, I don't think, and I, I think it's false to believe, that God was in need of a day of rest for himself, as if he was drained of his power after creating six days. It was so hard for him to do that. That's not true. Okay? He didn't take a day of rest because he was just physically exhausted from creation. He took a day of rest because he just stopped creating. He was done in six days. And so on the seventh day, he stopped. He succeeded from working. And so we see here that, uh, you know, he's omnipotent, right? He's all-powerful God, and all-powerful God doesn't run out of power. So he doesn't take a day of rest 
because he was fatigued. And so why did he take a rest, day of rest? The, the scripture indicates that God rested on the seventh day for his people, knowing ahead of time for his people. Exodus chapter 31, verse 16 and 17 says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It says, uh, I think it's speaking uh, uh, not literally there, but figuratively, uh, the Sabbath. It was established to serve as a sign. Okay? A sign that they were to observe it as part of a covenant with God. An acknowledgement of His creation. An acknowledgement of them being His chosen people. It was a sign to the people of Israel this Sabbath day. We know that keeping the Sabbath actually even became part of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments uh, is to keep the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20. Verses 8 through 11 states that to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so he said, the seventh day, it's for, for you, for your daughters, for your children, your cattle. You're not to do any work on, on this Sabbath day, on this seventh day. Okay? Not only was the Sabbath meant to be a day of rest, okay, but as indicated here in the fourth commandment, it was a day that was blessed. And the Lord hallowed it. And he instructed the Israelites to keep it holy. That word hallowed and holy, it's actually the same uh, word in the Hebrew, if you were to look them up. Uh, it's that same exact word. And it means to be set apart as holy, to be treated as holy. And the Sabbath, that's what it was. It was set apart as a day that was holy to the Lord. It became not only a day of rest, but a day set apart as holy and a, a special day to worship the Lord. Uh, there were special offerings that were given on the Sabbath. Okay? And there were daily offerings that were offered in the temple. But the Sabbath was a special day to worship the Lord. And they had a special Sabbath offerings. And it tells us that in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, it tells us that the Sabbath was a day that was set apart as a holy convocation. Okay, that word convocation, it, it means an assembling or a gathering of, uh, of sorts for religious purposes. And so the Sabbath was set aside as a, a holy convocation, a day that was set aside for people to gather together unto the Lord uh, to worship Him. And, and so we see the purpose of the Sabbath, it was twofold. One, it was a, it was a day of rest, okay? a day of, of physical rest. You need to set aside a day to, to find that physical rest. And, and two... It was a day of worship. It was a day that the people were called to gather together as in a holy convocation to worship the Lord. And Jesus, as we'll see, He never did anything that violated the Sabbath as it was first intended. 
He did not come to abolish the law, the scriptures tell us, but to fulfill the law, including the Sabbath. Okay? When he completed his work upon the cross, he fulfilled every part of the law. And so today, we are not held responsible for keeping the Sabbath. As I mentioned in, in last week's portion of Scripture, uh, when we were talking about Jesus' invitation to come and find rest in Him, right? We don't find our rest is not in a particular day of the week, okay? but it is in the Lord Himself. Okay? And He's available to us any day and every day. We can come to Him and find rest for our weary souls. Okay? Also, we are not required to gather together on a particular day because that day is holier than any other day. Okay? Uh, the Sabbath was set aside. This day is holy. You need to meet on this day. Okay? We, we don't have to hold to that. Okay? If we want to meet on Sunday morning, we meet on Sunday morning. If we want to meet on Saturday night, we can meet on Saturday night or Wednesday night or Tuesday morning, whatever you want to meet together. We don't have to meet on a certain day okay? for fellowship and, and for worship. Okay? Nonetheless, even though we do not have to keep the Sabbath, and I want to—it's—it's it's weird because I'm going to encourage you to do something, but I want to make sure that you realize that I'm not telling you to keep the Sabbath, okay? Because we're not in, under the law anymore. We do not have to keep the Sabbath, okay? Nonetheless, even though we're no longer required to keep the Sabbath, I do think that we ought to purpose in our heart to have a day that we allow ourselves to find physical rest. I think a lot of us could be on the go a lot. Okay? And we got things going and all the time, and we, we don't have enough time. And so oftentimes our own physical rest, that's the first thing to go. I don't have time to rest. And, and I want to encourage you guys to try and make that a priority in your life, to have a day set aside, to, to ha- find a physical rest. Okay? Also, the, the Scriptures do instruct us okay? in, in the New Testament after... Christ fulfilled the law. It, scriptures do still instruct us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10, verse 25 tells us that. Okay? And, and so we're encouraged. We should gather together as a body. And, and we should fellowship and worship together. Okay? And for us as a body here at Calvary Chapel, uh, Iwakuni, we've set aside Sunday morning. Okay? That's the day that we've selected and said, hey, this is the day that we're going to gather together as a body and to fellowship and to worship the Lord. And so do we keep the Sabbath? No. Okay? We are not held to keep the Sabbath, but we are to gather together for worship. We are to gather together for fellowship. We're not to forsake the gathering together uh, uh, of ourselves. And so, yes, we gather together. For us, it's Sunday morning. Yes, we should take a, a time of, of rest. Okay? So we find just an importance in setting aside time to find rest and also setting aside time to gather together in worship. It's not the Sabbath, but the principles that we find within them are still things that we ought to do today. Okay? Back to our account. So what did the disciples do that was unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Scripture stated that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest and that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. Now, the difficulty of, of keeping this law came down to the definition of what constitutes work. Okay? We're not to do work. Okay, well, what is work? Okay? 
and, and so scripture specifically mentioned a few things that were forbidden to do on the Sabbath. In Jeremiah, it, it talks about uh, carrying heavy burdens was prohibited to, to be de- to be done on the Sabbath. And so no carrying heavy objects, heavy burdens. That's not allowed. Okay? Exodus, it mentions kindling fire is prohibited. So you can't start a fire on the Sabbath. Okay? It also alludes to not doing work during the, the plowing and harvesting time. And, and, and so some people say, okay, well, you can't plow or harvest on the Sabbath either. Okay? Uh, in Nehemiah, it tells us that selling of goods was prohibited on the Sabbath. Because people were coming in to, on the day of the Sabbath and they were exchanging goods and selling. He said, you can't be doing that on the Sabbath. It's a day of, of worship to the Lord. And you guys are, you know, kind of like when Jesus came into the temple and he threw, overthrew the money changers tables because they had turned the, uh, a holy place into a den of thieves, bartering and selling. And so that was not allowed on the Sabbath. Okay, we have two examples where people were punished for gathering things on the Sabbath. Gathering manna, when they shouldn't have, they were told, don't do it. They gathered too much, or went out to gather manna, and they said, you can't do that, it's not going to be there. But they went out anyways, they were punished. And then another person that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath, uh, there's an account where that person was punished for gathering sticks. Outside of those, I could not find any other mention of something that was prohibited and described as work on the Sabbath. And so because there weren't a lot of specifics regarding what constituted work, the Pharisees and the scribes took it upon themselves to define what constituted work. Okay? And now the oral tradition uh, that was passed down eventually was collected into uh, writings called the Mishnah. If you guys are familiar with Jewish um, religion, there's the, the Mishnah. Okay, the Mishnah. Uh, there's the Talmud, which is you know, kind of like the writings upon the Mishnah, the rabbinical writings. And, and so basically all these oral tradition, this law was compiled and put in written form. Okay? And uh, they came up, eventually they calculated 39 different categories of what constituted work. Okay? And the 39 categories, I think we have them listed up here. Okay? So there's planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, Winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, cooking, shearing, scouring, combing, dyeing, spinning, warping, making loops, weaving, separating threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, curing, like food. You can't like put salt on your food. You can't cure. Okay? Smoothing, scoring, measured cutting, writing, erasing, building, dem- dem- demol- demolition, Extinguishing fire, igniting fire, finishing touch. Putting like the finishing touch on something. You can't do that. And then lastly, moving from domain. Moving from one domain to another. These 39 categories encompassed all that was work. Okay. Now the interesting thing is that each category was further defined. Okay? And more regulations were added. More rules. For instance, looking at some of these here that are listed. Planting. Planting was defined as the promotion of plant growth. And so not only planting is included in this category, other activities that promote plant growth are also prohibited. This includes watering, fertilizing, planting seeds, or planting grown plants. And so we see, okay, those things kind of, we can see how those tie into planting and can't do those things. But it it gets a little worse. Plowing. Plowing was defined as Promotion of substrate and readiness for plant growth 
be it soil, water, water, etc. Included in this prohibition, as I read here, it says, is any preparation or improvement of land for agricultural use. This includes dragging chair legs in soft soil, thereby unintentionally making furrows, pouring water on arable land that is not saturated, making a hole in the soil would provide protection for a seed placed there from rain and runoff. Even if no seed is ever placed there, the soil is now enhanced for the process of planting so you can't make a hole in the ground. That would be constituted as plant plowing. Okay, crazy, huh? Making a, a hole in the ground or dragging your lawn chair, you know, as you're hanging out on Saturday for the Sabbath um, and, and resting. That would be, you just worked, you know, you, you made furrows in the ground and, and you've, you've plowed. Okay, reaping, this one was interesting. Reaping was defined as severing a plant from its source of growth. Okay, so you're reaping something, you're separating it from the source of growth. Okay. Removing all or part of a plant from its source of growth is reaping. Rabbinically, it says it is forbidden to climb a tree. You cannot climb a tree because of reaping. And the reason was, is because for fear that you may lead to breaking a branch off. And if you broke a branch off, you would be breaking off of something from its source of growth and you would be reaping. So you cannot climb a tree. Okay? Also, it was forbidden rabbinically to ride an animal because of reaping, okay? Because you may unthinkingly detach a stick to hit the animal with, to put it on its way. So you can't do that either, okay? Um, and I was reading through these things, and I thought, riding an animal falls under reaping? How far, like removed are you getting from this but it's just kind of crazy and it only gets crazier and crazier we're not going to go through them all but you know even today if you go to israel i haven't had the opportunity but a number of people from our church in okinawa had went and they told about how some of the hotels they would have sabbath elevators and you you go and there's a sabbath elevator that you go on and it stops and opens up its door on every single floor because if you were to push the button on an elevator, that would be constituted as work. And so they have a Sabbath elevator, even today in Israel, side by side. One will be like a non-Sabbath. If you're not Jewish, you don't want to uh, hear that. You can go on the other one. But if you get stuck in the other one, you're going to hit every single floor, and it's going to open up on every single one. Crazy to think how far they took this idea of defining what constituted work. Okay, So... According to the Pharisees, these disciples, they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath law because by plucking grain and eating it, they would have violated at least three categories of work. They were reaping, they were removing it, okay, threshing, separating it from its, you know, and then the idea of winnowing is if they blew on it, they blew some of the chaff or something like that away, that would be winnowing. And so they're like, you've broken at least three of the laws right then and there by plucking that grain and eating it. And so they, they said that's, they're, they're guilty. These Pharisees, they, they had taken a, a special day of rest and a special day of worship, and they had turned it into a, a heavy burden to bear. Okay? How can one truly rest if they're walking around on eggshells in fear that they may unintentionally break the Sabbath? And these Pharisees, in their pursuit of determining the exact letter of the law, they missed out on the spirit of the law. The the Sabbath was a day of rest, not not rules and and regulations. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay? And so how did Jesus respond to the accusations that these Pharisees made? Let's read in verse 3 and 4. It says, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were, who were with him, but only for the priest. Here we see Jesus responded by reminding the Pharisees of what David and his men did when they were going uh, and hiding. Okay? Uh, they were hiding from King Saul. And you can read about this account. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21 if you guys want to later on uh, in your devotional reading. Okay? But there in that account, David and his men, they came to a city of priests. It was the city of Nob. And they sought out bread to eat for their journey. And the priest, Ahimelech, informed David that they didn't have any common bread. We don't have any, like, just regular bread. Uh, only bread that they had was the holy bread that was set aside for the priest. Okay? You guys may recall, and part of uh, worship is that they would have a table of showbread. Okay? And they would have 12 loaves of bread there that would be set out for a week. After the week, that bread would be removed. They would put 12 new loaves, and that bread that was removed was to be eaten by the priest. It was holy unto the, the priest for them to eat. And so that's the bread that the, it's talking about here, this bread that it's not on the, ta- the, the table of showbread anymore. It's been removed, but it's you know, kind of set aside for the priest. And, and so he says, we don't have any common bread. Uh, the priest declared to David, though, as you read, he says, that as long as the men were ceremonially clean and had kept themselves from women, that they could go ahead and eat of the bread. And after David assured the priest that his men indeed were ceremonially clean, the holy bread was then given to David and his men. And, and some say that Jesus used this example to show that it was okay for the disciples to break the Sabbath law because David broke the law. Okay? That would be a wrong conclusion, though. Okay? This would mean that David and the disciples were guilty of breaking the law. And we see David was never held responsible for such. And Jesus, in verse 7, described his disciples as guiltless. And so they, they weren't guilty of breaking the law. So it's not a matter of him saying, that doesn't matter. We, you can break the Sabbath. Okay? He, he's not using, trying to say that. So why use this example? I, I believe it was to show the Pharisees that David and the priest Ahimelech, they didn't adhere to the exact letter of the law, but adhered to the spirit of the law. And in so doing, they were not in violation of the law. Hey, this is set aside as holy. Are your men ceremonially clean? Are they, you know, yeah, they are. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and give it to you then. It was the idea. Okay, the letter of the law was that the bread was set aside for the priest. But if the priest wanted to give his bread to help someone in need, especially someone that was ceremonially clean, there wasn't anything wrong with that. There wasn't a violation of the law. So thus David was not held accountable for eating the showbread given to him, and his, nor his men. Okay? And, and so this example goes to show that human need was more important than observing these ceremonial rituals and traditions, and they were not breaking the law because they were. it was the priest's bread. It was given to him. Okay? And he wanted to share it with David and his men, and he gave them five of the loaves. And he said, you know, it's okay. And they weren't held accountable to it. And so 
Likely that the disciples, they were guiltless in their eating of the grain because their human need for sustenance trumped any tradition that the Pharisees had constituted as work. They had come up with their own oral law and oral tradition that said, that's work. They said, no, it's not. Hey, Jesus gives another example in his defense of his disciples in verses 5 and 6. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Jesus here, he refers to the work of the priest on the Sabbath. Okay? Jesus reminded the priest, or excuse me, reminded the Pharisees that the priests, they, they would bear all sorts of burdens in their service, service at the temple on the Sabbath. They would profane the Sabbath. That, that word profane, profane means to desecrate. They would desecrate the Sabbath uh, you know, thinking of how they defined what work was. Okay, recall that list uh, of things that all those thirty-nine different categories. Okay, I think the priests probably broke at least half of them during the Sabbath. Okay, they were there were, as I mentioned, daily offerings that need to be offered on the Sabbath. But on the Sabbath, there was even extra work. Okay, for six days you'd do one thing, but on the, the day of the Sabbath you had to do extra as a priest. Okay, and, and so. They had to uh, slaughter lambs. They had to burn incense. They had to mix different grains and oils. They, they had to pour out drink offerings. And they had to, they had to clean up after themselves. Okay? All that kind of stuff's dirty. You know, dirty work. And so they had to do a lot of work. You know, the Sabbath was probably the busiest day and the hardest day of work for the priest. And so the priest, although they did all sorts of work on the Sabbath, and by the Pharisees' interpretation would be profaning or desecrating the Sabbath, they're not held accountable for their actions. Why? Well, because what they did, they did as service unto the Lord. It was their responsibility. And it was even part of the Mosaic law, not the oral law. It was part of the Mosaic law to serve the Lord in the temple, and, and therefore they were not held responsible for Seeming violations of work on the Sabbath. And then Jesus said something very important, a great importance. He said, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. What does he mean by that? Okay. Who is this one greater than the temple? It's Jesus. Jesus, of course. Jesus is obviously is referring to himself as the one being greater than the temple. And so why would he make that connection? Because okay? he's coming to a conclusion. He's drawing a conclusion that says, if the priests that serve in the temple are seen as blameless in their work, then so too are my disciples who are serving one greater than the temple. They're serving me. And so you see the disciples, they were, they were traveling with Jesus, and because they were in the service of the Lord and serving one greater than the temple, they should be seen as blameless, just like the priests who serve in the temple, and they would work in the temple and not be held accountable. He says there's one greater than the temple here, and they're not held accountable because their service and what they're doing, we're traveling along, we're doing ministry, and they needed to grab some grain, they're not held accountable for that because they are serving in one, for one greater than the temple. Okay? I think Jesus here, he presents a pretty good case for combating the, these allegations that were slung at him and his disciples. And I want to note with you how he did it. He said, have you not read? Jesus went to the scripture to give a reason for why 
he was doing what he was doing and why it was okay to do what they were doing. I believe that this is an example that we ought to look to follow. That we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay? And I believe that not only are we able to, not only are we to be able to give a defense to all who ask us about our hope in Christ, because that verse is talking about the hope of salvation that we have, but not only for our hope in salvation, but I, I think it's important to be able to give even biblical reasons for why we do just the regular things that we do in life, our, our convictions, and, and people ask us, you know, you know, it's not we. Everything isn't just because, well, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm a Christian. You know, it's like, well, you have personal things that, you know, you have liberty to do, but you've decided not to do it. And you, maybe I would encourage you not to just say, well, I don't, we just don't do that because I'm a Christian. Be able to take people to Scripture and say, this is why we don't do this. Or this is why I've chosen to do this. And this is, I feel like the Lord's led us and our family to do this. And this is why. Because the Scriptures say yada, 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 yada. Okay? We need to be able to not only give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ, our salvation, but just the things that we do in our everyday life. Okay? If someone asks you why you live your life the way you do, could you take them to the Scriptures and, and show them lovingly, as it says, with meekness and fear, as First Peter tells us, why you do what you do? I think that's something that we ought to be able to do. And so I want to encourage you guys to be familiar with the Word and to know the Word and and to use it and share it with others and say, this is why we do what we do. This is why we've made the decisions that we've made as a family. Because the scriptures say this, and this is what we feel like the Lord's impressed upon our heart. This is what Jesus did. The Pharisees brought accusations, and Jesus defended them by taking the Pharisees to the scriptures, and we should be able to do the same. Verse 7, it says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus refers yet again here to the Scriptures, and he quotes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, in fact. And it says, For I desire, Hosea says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. By quoting Hosea, Jesus wraps up his defense and exclaims that they didn't understand Hosea's words. If they did, they understand Hosea's words, they would not have condemned the guiltless. They would not would have slung these accusations at the disciples who are guiltless if they understood what Hosea was saying. Jesus informed the Pharisees of God's desire. That, that word desire, it means to be disposed or inclined toward anything, okay? to delight in or love. And in which case, it's synonymous with the word phileo, to love. You guys are probably familiar with the uh, preposition phileo, to love. God's heart, His desire, delights in mercy. And I, and I believe that is a wonderful truth of God that a lot of us need to grab a hold of. God loves mercy. He delights in mercy. His heart towards us is full of mercy. Okay? Remember how we described mercy before. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Okay? What do we deserve? We deserve to be punished for our sin. 
but God delights in mercy. We deserve to pay the penalty for our sin, which is death, but God loves mercy. We deserve the repercussions that we have coming to us based upon the poor choices that we've made in our life, but God's heart is full of mercy. God loves to pardon us, to, to free us from the guilt of, and stain of sin. God loves mercy. Okay? And I think that's an awesome truth that we ought to go, grab a hold of. Like sometimes we feel wearied or feel condemnation from the world. God loves mercy. He loves to pardon us. Okay? I'm so thankful that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. You guys, sacrifice is something that I try to do to cover up what I've done. I need to come and I need to present a sacrifice and I hope that it's good enough for me. Okay? Mercy is something that God does to cover up what I've done. Okay? And so who do we want to... Do we want to... God delights in mercy, not sacrifice. It's not us trying to cover up ourselves. God done, has done it for us. And I'm glad that God delights in mercy and not sacrifice. He's so much better at covering up my shortcomings and my failures than I could ever dream of being able to do on my own. And I think the same applies to you guys as well. Jesus pointed this out to the Pharisees to show them that they were out of touch with the heart of God. That they had made up so many rules and rituals and traditions that in their attempt to serve and honor God that they had completely removed God from the equation. And they had sacrifice and tradition and rituals and nothing of God. They tried to perfect the law in and of themselves. They tried to live by the exact letter of the law. And in doing so, they missed the heart and intention God had for the law. The law was meant to show us our need for God. Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was meant to teach each and every one of us that we are in desperate need of God's mercy. That's what the law was for. It wasn't for us to try and keep. We couldn't keep it. It was to show you, you need help. You need a Savior. You need me to intervene. We need God's grace. We need His forgiveness. His, his intervening. That There's none that could live up to the standard of fulfilling the complete law. And that's why God had to send Christ. Because He was the only one that could fulfill the law completely. And through Him, we've been given grace and mercy. Okay? That's, the law was not meant for us to... There's no way. It was supposed to say, you can't do it. You need me. And they had missed out on that. Instead of coming to the realization to the, their need for God to intervene, the Pharisees, they just kept on creating more and more rules and more and more regulations that when you drag your lawn chair across the road, that's, that's work. You can't do that. And they had all sorts of things to, to point the finger to. You can't do this. You can't do that. Heavy burdens. And doing so, they completely failed and detached themselves from the heart of God. And if they would have known God's heart, they would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This bold statement was the equivalent of Jesus proclaiming to be God. Okay? He's saying, you know, the Son of Man, that's who 
the title that he referred to himself as, people referred to him as, okay, was the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath is God. And, and for Jesus to say that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he would put himself on equal as God, a very bold proclamation that Jesus makes. And, and the point in making such a claim was that he was claiming to be the source of authority on the matter, specifically the, the Sabbath. He says, look, I'm God. Okay? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? You guys have made it a whole bunch of other things, but that's not what it is. I know what's right and what's wrong. I know what's violating the Sabbath and what's not violating the Sabbath. And you guys are violating the Sabbath, not us. With all your rules and rituals and regulations, and you've, you've turned it into work. It's not supposed to be a day of work. Verse 9 and 10, it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees asked. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. In these verses we see, again, the Pharisees trying to pit Jesus against the Sabbath and their distorted interpretation of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. Jesus, as was his custom, made his way to the local synagogue on the Sabbath. And there in attendance was a man with a withered hand. A withered hand... Um, depicts an idea of, of something lacking natural juices. Someone suffering from a withered hand would not be able to stretch out their limb and for the most part would be unable to move the hand from about the elbow down. It would be, it's kind of like stuck in like this and you can't move it. It doesn't have its you know, natural juices and flow and it's you know, like a deformity of, so, of sorts. And so this guy had a withered hand. Now, whether or not this man who just happened to be there is debatable. Some believe that the Pharisees may have planted this man there to see if Jesus would perform a healing on the Sabbath. And we can't say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were true, that he was a staged man, a plot uh, put there specifically for their own intentions. One of the things that amazes me, though, is that the Pharisees, they watched Jesus closely to see whether or not he would indeed heal this man. And the thing that is a little bit amazing and shocking to me as you think of that, is that there seems to be little to no doubt as to the ability of Jesus to perform such a miracle. Just the idea of he'll do it on Sabbath. And, and to me that's interesting and a little bit perplexing to consider. Here they have a man that can perform the miraculous through healing, and that doesn't seem to make any difference to them. Hey, their focus is trying to trap him into breaking their oral laws. We're going to trap him. Okay? Yeah, we know he can heal. Do you know what that means? That he has the power to... That, that doesn't matter. Is he going to do it on the Sabbath? It's, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher to me. That they, they totally acknowledge his ability to heal, and yet they don't care. They want to see if he'll break the oral law, the, the tradition of the Sabbath. It doesn't make sense. The Pharisees asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And according to their interpretation in oral law, it was prohibited to heal on the Sabbath, for healing was considered to require work. Interesting, I dug up a little bit of research on this. And according to their oral law, one can work on the Sabbath only to save a life, but not to heal. And they actually gave an, an example. And they basically said, if someone was deeply wounded and was bleeding all over the place, not to be too graphic or gory, but bleeding all over the place, you would be permitted to put a tourniquet upon the person to stop the bleeding, okay, to, to save their life. 
Okay? But you would not be able to put any gauze or bandages upon the wound, nor any sort of ointment or take any type of medication to aid in the process of healing because that would be considered work. That's crazy to me. <laughs> A little bit ridiculous even. We're told that the purpose of why they asked the question, it, it wasn't because they cared about this man who had a withered hand. Okay? He was just a pawn in their scheme. No, the reason they asked Jesus is because they thought they could trap him and, because, and accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus, instead of, of answering the question directly, he posed a question to them in response. In verse 11, he said, Then he said to them, What man is there among you? who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it up, or lift it out. Of how much more value than, an, than is a man than a sheep, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. According to their oral law, it was permissible to lift out a sheep from a pit if it fell into one on the Sabbath, even though lifting the sheep would be constituted as bearing a heavy laden, and, and they were allowed an exception from the law for such an instance. And Jesus being aware of their oral tradition, he uses it against them. And he, and he basically says, knowing that they made this allowance to help an animal in need, surely they ought to allow him the opportunity to help a man in need. It's okay to help an animal in need. It ought to be okay to help a man in need. Of, for, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Okay? Man. Being made in the likeness and image of God is far superior than the sheep. And, and so it just makes sense. If it's okay to help an animal, it certainly is okay to help a man. With that, Jesus answers their question in the affirmative. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus showed and proved to the Pharisees once again that their own oral law and traditions were not in touch with the heart of God. Okay? In Mark's account of this incident, it tells us something worth noting. In Mark chapter 3, it tells us that after Jesus had questioned the Pharisees, that they kept silent. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Okay? Jesus was angered and grieved because their hearts were so hard. The Pharisees would, would more rather bring judgment and condemnation to Jesus than have compassion for this man with a withered hand. Jesus, he sees into their hearts and he realizes just how far they have abandoned the love of God and have bonded themselves to the law of God. Not even the law of God, the law of their own making. They've allowed legalism to become their God. And I believe that this needs to serve as a warning to us. Don't allow legalism to creep into our hearts Legalism, it brings death and destruction. It will cause you to abandon the heart of God, which we know to be merciful, gracious, kind, and loving. And it will cause you to adopt something that tears down, destroys, and ultimately, ultimately leads to death. We need to beware of legalism in our own hearts. Because these Pharisees, and they, were, they just blew it. They were, they were the poster children for legalism, and they're not a good example to follow. Wrapping things up here, I know we're getting a little bit late here. Verse 13, it says this. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. 
Jesus in verse 13, he commands the man with a withered hand to do something that was impossible for him to do. He says, stretch out your hand. He, he had a withered hand. It was stuck like this. He can't stretch it out. And Jesus commanded him to do something that was impossible for him to do. And I, and I want to ask you the question, has God ever done that to you? Has he ever asked you to do something that you just felt was physically impossible to do? I know that it happens to me in my life. The fact of me being here right now is proof to that. I'd say, no way, that's not possible. I'm not going to be a pastor. And the Lord says, oh yeah? And chuckles a little bit. But anyways... You know, I, I, God has asked me to do things that I, I never thought possible. And I believe he's probably asked you things that you thought, oh, no, that's not possible. I can't do that. You know, that's impossible for me to do. And, and what do you do in a situation like that? What did this man do? He responded in faith and he attempted to do that which was impossible for him to do. And he attempted to, to put forth his hand. And that's when God stepped in and did the rest. He, he healed this man. And I see here just a, a small final point for our time together. And it's this. God never commands us without enabling us. Jesus commanded the man to do the very thing that he could not do, and yet he did it. God's commandments always come with God's enablement. When God commands us to do something, He's going to give us the ability to do so. He's not going to command us to do something that's impossible. He'll, he'll, when He tells us to do something, He gives us the ability to do it. And, and so let that serve as a reminder to you the next time that God asks you to do something that you think is impossible. You say, oh, I, I can't do that, God. You know, that's impossible, I can't do that. Let this serve as a reminder that God's commandments always come with God's enablement. That God will give you the strength to do what he's asked you to do. And we can be confident in that. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for uh, this morning. I thank you for just the things that we're able to glean, Lord. And I'm just so thankful that you delight in mercy and not sacrifice. Lord, our own works, our own ability, our own trying to keep the law or be... Uh, cover up for our own sins. Lord, we just fall flat on our face every time we try to do that. And so, Lord, I'm so very thankful for your mercy towards us. I'm thankful that, Lord, uh, you love us. Lord, that uh, you just enable us to do what you ask us to do. Father, I I just think of this uh, portion of Scripture. And, and Lord, yeah, the the Sabbath, uh, you fulfilled it. But, Lord, I, I know it's important for us still to gather together. I know it's important for us to have time of rest. And I pray that we might find that rest in you. Father, I pray that... Uh, we would take advantage of opportunities we have to fellowship with the body, to find encouragement, just uh, edification from it, Lord. Lord, uh, just thankful. Thankful for what you do in our lives. And I pray you just continue to be with us as we worship you and, and sing one more song. And then we have an opportunity to fellowship with one another and break bread and together. pray your blessings would be with us. Your presence would continue to be with us throughout the day. We love you. Thank you for your goodness and your love mercy towards us. In Jesus' name we pray.